Second Peter starts on page 1018 in your pew Bible, and I do invite you to follow along. It's primarily a warning. It's something that I think modern Lutherans don't think about very much, which is that you can fall away. You can lose your faith. And you can do it while sitting in a pew. Primarily by listening to a teacher who doesn't tell you the things that make for the Christian faith. Now, maybe you think that's impossible. Well, Peter says it's not. And in fact, thinking that it's impossible is probably one of the things that a false teacher would lead you to believe. Not by saying it's impossible but by encouraging a more lukewarm approach to the faith. It's sort of just a a thing we have. It's a great idea. It's really nice. We're all going to be saved. Isn't Jesus amazing? But never really dealing with the substance of the faith, let alone the practice of the faith. Now, when I say practice of the faith, I don't mean that you need to keep yourself saved by works. That's not what I mean. That's why we need to look closely at our text we heard read. But what I do mean is that if you forget what you've been saved from and decide to embrace what you've been saved from, then you are embracing a loss of the faith that you've been given. And the warning here is that we, as a congregation, would not do that, and that you individually then are part of that we. And for you then to embrace your part as a member of the body in your devotion to the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to start with the second half of verse 1. The first half, Simon Peter, servant of an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's good. That's who it's from. Actually, you could debate that because many scholars do. But let's not listen to the liberal scholars. Let's trust what Peter says. It's from Peter. And then let's look at the next thing he says there. Who is he writing to? To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who's the ours? That's the Jews. That's the Old Testament people of Israel. I don't mean modern Jews and modern Judaism. I mean David and Solomon and Isaiah and all those who were waiting for the promises, Simeon and Anna. Yes, John's parents and John himself, Peter, James, John, Thaddeus, all the apostles. He says, I'm writing to you who have obtained the same belief. Where? Through, in, the righteousness. That's the gift of justification, the most Lutheran thing you could get. The righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus died to save sinners of whom we all are the foremost, and there's no one left out of that promise whatsoever. All right? He's writing to those who believe this to be true. I want you to skip just verse 2. It's a good verse, but I want to look at verse 3. Verse 3 goes on to talk about this knowledge and then leads into our reading for today where he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Again, this is the Lutheran distinctive. Jesus saves, not you. The gospel is that you're saved by grace, not by your works. 
The promise is that God has elected you to be pulled out of darkness and into his marvelous light. His divine power has granted this to you. It's his action from the beginning. And it says, to us all, these things that pertain to life and godliness, which first and foremost is his resurrection from the dead. He is risen. Alleluia. This gift of his resurrection is through the knowledge of him. You're knowing what the creed says, how he suffered under Pontius Pilate, died, was buried, rose again, ascended, and will come again. Knowing that is salvation. Not in the future, not on the last day, now, today. And to believe that again today and have it be the lens through which you see everything in this world, that's salvation by faith in the present. That you are called to his own glory and excellence. Okay, verse four. By which, this knowledge by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Oh, it's so beautiful. Every line in there. First off again, that this knowledge of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus is coming again to do is a divine promise. Yeah, it's a swearing of an oath for your good by God Almighty. So that through this oath, by believing that he is risen, alleluia, you become a partaker in the divine nature. Now that's a crazy thought right there. You are a partaker in God's nature. Now the old fathers said that God became man so that man might become God, and that can be misunderstood. But it can also be understood rightly which is that because you are a member of the body of Christ, and because Christ is God, you now supersede, you have surpassed creation as the firstborn of a new creation, which will reflect that nature of God through you on the day of resurrection as heads of the new order, the whole new world to come. And this same divine nature, is put in you now as the Holy Spirit inhabiting you so that you would believe what it is impossible to believe. That Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And this makes you people who have escaped from the corruption of the world because of its sinful desires. That is, within you is Adam's nature that is discontent with everything. Even when you see something you want so bad and you're discontent and you plan and work and hard and then you get it, you're discontent then too. Our human nature, fallen in Adam, is always wanting more than it has. And that's its own punishment. Covetousness is its own punishment. But you've escaped from only being that. You at least can know how wrong it is, even while you continue to find it in yourself but you've escaped from it being your God because now you have this other God, Jesus Christ. Okay, and then here comes our text. Knowing this, knowing this, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, 
Godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. It reads like a big long list, but there is, there's a train of thought here. So you, you have faith in Christ. Yes. He says, okay, good. Now, because you know who Christ is, desire to be like him. That's virtue. Desire goodness. Yeah. But now don't just say, I want to be good, not evil. You have to supplement that virtue with knowledge. There are many people out there today who say, I want to be good, not evil. And good means all sorts of evil things. So you must have a virtue that is true. So you must push toward the knowledge of God's revelation. Once you know what God says, do this. It's good. Don't do that. It's bad. You must supplement that knowledge with self-control. That is, you're going to find yourself in a moment where you're like, I want to do this. And your knowledge is going to say, but that's wrong. And you're going to have to fight against yourself. That's called self-control. Supplement self-control with steadfastness or patience. That means when you want to do what's wrong and you're trying to fight against yourself, largely what you'll have to do is hold back what you want. Now, you'll have to stand in suffering in some way and let it be less than your perfect desire would have it be. So with that patience then, supplement that with piety, godliness. That means to know I'm, I'm trying to be patient. I, I don't have the self-control I want, but I know what I ought to do. Dear Jesus, help me. Don't rely on yourself in that moment. Don't believe that you're going to do this. No, the only hope you have is salvation again from that moment. And then in that moment where you're praying to God for mercy, supplement that mercy from God with mercy for your brother, brotherly affection. That you would desire good for those around you, not only for yourself. And then that is what love finally is. When you see that even your enemy, because you reflect God in true goodness, even your enemy deserves your mercy, your good, your prayers. Even as those prayers sometimes are cast down my enemy, we know it also is cast him upon his sin that he might repent and believe. Yes. And so loving your enemy is the highest virtue of all because that is who Jesus is. And that's what he's been to you. Now, verse 8 tells us that if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, if you want this, if this is what you think Christianity teaches, you're not really going to be in danger because you're going to be pursuing the goodness God gives you. And that way, you don't really have to worry about being unfruitful because you're chasing the fruit. It's not about, again, looking back at your belly and saying, well, have I done enough? Rather, it's about repenting of what you find when you find it to be not enough. Yeah. Believing that these things are good rather than that they're not so worth pursuing or even, as I think is more common these days, not believing that you need to pursue anything at all. Christianity is just sort of a, a hobby in the back pocket, a get-out-of-jail-free-on-judgment-day card. Yeah? Now, verse 9 says, though, again, so if that's how you're looking at life, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. If you don't believe that Christianity is about being a disciple of Jesus Christ, which means he has saved you into a life that is different from the life of the rest of the world, then you're blind and you've forgotten that you're saved. Now, that doesn't mean you're not saved yet, right? 
it's quite possible to be very ignorant and very crude in your faith and be saved on the last day. Don't forget, uh, Paul talks about this in the Corinthian letters. He says that there is only one foundation for your building, uh, and your building is your life. That foundation is Jesus. And if you confess his name, you believe that he is risen, he is risen indeed, alleluia, then rest assured you're building on the foundation. But you can build with gold or you can build with straw. And the straw is going to burn up and the gold is going to shine like the sun. And so what he's saying here now is build with gold. Don't be satisfied with straw. Don't be satisfied being like the world now that you've been freed from its way of thinking. Do you want peace rather than anxiety? Do you want hope rather than fear? That's what he's talking about. Therefore, brothers, verse 10, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Confirming your election. Election means you didn't do it, by the way. Election is the word that means from eternity, God chose you individually. But he says, remember it. Be all the more diligent to look for it. And if you want to know where to look for it, let me tell you again, it is in your holy baptism. It is in the fact that God has anointed you. He's christened you as distinct from the world. He has, what do we do in the fall? He has set you apart from the rest of the world, an offering that he brings to his father. But you want to know that. You want to rely on that. Confirm it in your own head every day. You want to see it so that you're not blinded with the rest of the world. And he says, if you practice these qualities, then you will never fall. You got nothing to fear because you're going to be constantly seeing what Jesus says is good. And to be sure, you're going to find the battle against your flesh, which will push you back to need, knowing that you need Jesus to save you from all of it anyway. In this verse 11, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to jump ahead here now to verse 19 of the same section. Next column over, where he says, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So if there is a place to seek more diligence, it's not by going off into the world and be like, well, I need to have some knowledge of Jesus today. Hmm, I'm going to think about it and try to make it happen. No, you have the prophetic word, that's the Old Testament, made more clear, that's the New Testament. And you do well to pay attention to what it says because it's like a lamp in a dark room. You ever get up at night and try to find your way? I know, you know, most of us, I would imagine, you can kind of find your way in the dark, yeah? Um, but, but try doing that. Imagine walking through life without any light. And again, that's what you do if you stop reading the Bible. You're trying to live without a lamp, yeah? It's a light shining in a dark place for your heart to have Jesus raised up within it. And then verse 20, it says, knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It's not about what you think. It's not about how you try to understand it. The apostles were not men who made errors and so we can throw it away. He's saying that this is to be trusted above all things, above all things. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As Lutherans, we call that saying the Bible is inspired and inerrant. That means there's no errors in it. 
But I don't think the major problem most Lutheran Christians have these days, and really many Christians have these days, is the concern that it's got errors in it. That's, that's not the fight we're having. We're just bored or too busy. We just think, oh, I can't, I don't have time for that right now. Or, oh, it's not that interesting. Now, when you have that in your heart, first know this is fairly normal as a human. Everyone has this on some level, okay? The solution there, again, is that self-control and steadfastness seeking knowledge and virtue. That you don't give yourself the option. You're not allowed to not do it. I mean, every night, do you think, hmm, should I brush my teeth tonight or not? I don't really feel like it. I'm kind of tired. Or do you just know, I've made a habit, I hope, I hope, you've made a habit of this, and every night you just brush your teeth. Okay, that's how Bible reading should be in your life. Not necessarily every night, not necessarily every morning, but sometime every day, you should open that book and give it at least 15 minutes. And I will promise you this, actually. I think it's a bold promise. I think you, if you set a timer, 10 minutes, I'll do 10 minutes or five minutes, the timer will go off and you'll keep reading. Because whatever you're in will be interesting enough to keep you there. This is what, as a whole, I'm not saying you individually, I don't know what you're all doing, but as a whole, we have lost this as a church. I mean, big picture. We have forgotten that this is what makes us Protestants. The reason we protested is they wouldn't let us have the Bible. And we got it back and we held it and we built great churches across the world. And then we decided to just kind of live. And piece by piece, that reading has fallen away. Okay. And in the meantime, we've then made ourselves susceptible to what chapter 2, verse 1 says, that we have terribly forgotten. Terribly forgotten. It says, but false prophets also arose among the people, that's Old Testament, just as there will be false teachers among you. That is false pastors, by the way. What will they do? These false teachers who will arise among Christianity, they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Heresy means false teaching or lie, a lie about God, a blasphemy. They will bring it in secretly, though. They, they sway you with it, even to the point of denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now, I'll give you a very extreme example that I saw just this week. There was a group of pastors on YouTube having a conversation about human sexuality and the man with a collar, much like the one I wear, I don't know what church body he's part of, but he was talking about how when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, he was telling them it's okay to be transgender. False teacher, slipping in, bringing a destructive heresy. But I think most of you here today aren't in danger of that one, right? But I want you to think back a little bit. I want you, if you can, if you're older especially, to remember the days when St. Paul was bigger. When there was more going on. When it seemed like it would always be that way. And if you can remember also how it changed, but how did it change? People left, but how did they leave? It wasn't all one thing. It wasn't all the same thing. But I'll guarantee you, it was because destructive heresies were pulling people away. It's because as a whole group, what was at the center was no longer at the center of all of you. Otherwise, you would never have that happen. You would have no way to let go of it because you all would agree, this is what life's about. This is the most important thing in the world. 
So what I want you to see, I don't want you to point fingers. I want you to see that it happens to us, especially wherein we cease to have the scriptures be the clear and present center of our gathering together. Don't be surprised then. Verse two, many will follow their sensuality and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Couple key things in there. Many. Lots of people follow false teachers. The way is wide that leads to destruction. The way is narrow that leads to salvation. But what are they following here? The primary teaching, not knowledge in virtue, seeking patience and self-control, but sensuality. You could translate that word as passion. You could just see it as like how you feel. It's not really about your emotions as though emotions are the problem, but it's sort of like when the pastor says, well, the Bible says, that a woman is not given to teach. And you say, oh, that sounds like sexist. I don't like that. That's sensuality. The Bible says this, you say, I don't like that. That's sensuality. And you seek for a way around the rule. That's sensuality. Many will follow that and blaspheme the way of truth. That is, there'll be Christians and Christian churches out there saying lies in the name of God. And in their greed, it says, They will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. So notice the exploitation again. He is talking about the false teacher, the false pastor. The false pastor is worried about his belly. He's a hireling, not a shepherd. And his goal is to exploit you. His goal is to make his life better. Does he know this? Probably not probably not. He is probably self-deceived and believes firmly that he is serving God. And truly, every pastor out there, when they see this text, needs to beat their chest and know that, in fact, they do serve their belly. None of us are the good shepherd. None of us are without fear. None of us are without despair. None of us are without the thought that somehow it's up to us. But the true servant of Jesus is going to teach the text anyway, regardless of what comes. And then you have, again, that false teacher who will slip in and say, well, if we get rid of that closed communion policy, maybe more people come to church. Let's do that and see what happens. And maybe more people come to church. But that doesn't mean more people came to the church of Jesus Christ. And that's the warning. That's the warning here. All right. So as verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, we're going to jump down again now to verses 12 through 14. It's kind of in the middle of that paragraph. He describes these false teachers in their spirit. But I also want you to see this is not just the false teacher. This is every person who doesn't have the spirit of God. This is how they view the world. Your friends and neighbors that are not Christians, this is what they are. It's what the Bible says they are. It says, verse 12, these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. Okay, so, so there's a bit about them being zombie-like. They're just animals. They're just out there doing whatever they feel like. But remember what I said earlier about how covetousness is its own punishment. Like the moment you're dissatisfied and you want something more, the punishment is you're dissatisfied. You're not supposed to be dissatisfied. And you don't have to be, honestly, much of the time. If you can remember that this moment, 
Even being killed on a cross is a gift from Jesus to preserve your faith unto life everlasting, that you're going to rise from the dead. Well, again, then you're not coveting, are you? That's the idea he gets at here, that they suffer wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. It's the sin itself like a snowball rolling down a hill that becomes its own punishment. They then, verse 13, count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. That is to do evil things and not worry about it at all. Even say that they are good things. And again, if you watch the news, it's not hard to miss this these days, especially in the the realm of marriage and sexuality and what children are and what they're for and all this kind of stuff. And so they, they are counted blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Now, here's the important thing about that. While they feast with you, this is a warning about Christians. I said this is about those who are not Christians. That's true. But when you have Christians who come in and do wicked things in the midst of the assembly and then feast with us, right? This is a blot then on us. And this is why discipleship, discipline, not the pastors watching your every move to kick you out, but we're all together. You're watching yourselves desiring to follow what Jesus actually said. You're bearing with each other's burdens, building each other up. That is what the church must be, or instead we will gradually let the gangrene take us over. Yeah, Verse 14, their eyes are full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained for greed. All right, then. Uh, I want to close our morning here by jumping way ahead in the book to chapter 3, verses uh, 11 through 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, he's coming out of saying there's fire coming, that fire is going to burn the entire universe up. But we can also hear then the wrong as punishment for wrongdoing, sin building itself into a chaotic destruction of itself. That's how this is coming about, okay? So since we know that, that anyone who is not being built up in the knowledge of Jesus Christ unto self-control and patient endurance as we wait for his coming kingdom is going to be dissolved, since everything we own and make and do is going to be dissolved, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness that's being set apart and godliness, that's piety, that's not righteousness. Godliness does not mean how good you are. It means that you know who God is. What sort of people are we to be being set apart and knowing who God is, waiting for and hastening, verse 12, the coming of the day of God? Notice the emphasis here. It's not about today alone. It's about the last day. It's about today we believe in the last day. And he says to hasten it. How would you make the last day come faster? Well, you're not going to make it come faster. But in your own mind, you can make it a more permanent piece of your life through your prayers about it. When you pray the Lord's Prayer at home in the morning or the evening, do you? You should. When you do and you say, deliver us from evil, that means Jesus come back. Make the evil go away. Bring the final kingdom. That's to hasten the coming of the day of God. That day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. Can you remember that? That the judgment's going to burn up the stars and the sun and the moon and Mars. All that stuff's going to be gone. The heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. But 
according to his promise. Remember how we started great and precious promises. You partake of the divine nature when you feast on the body and blood of Jesus Christ. According to that promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth. That everything here, when it dissolves, especially on that final day, will be replaced by a new and greater reality in which righteousness, that's justification, that's justice, that's goodness, that's symmetry, that's perfection, that's accuracy, that's hope, that's love, in which all these things are the only things which dwell. Looking forward to that and not forgetting that's who we are. Not building great buildings in this world, but remembering we live in tents and we sojourn through it. That's the kind of people we ought to be. Set apart, knowing who our God is, Jesus Christ, and trusting that indeed Christ has died, Christ is risen. Christ will come again. In the name of Jesus, amen.